Hallelujah. Yes, Lord, we thank you that today we gather to exalt the one who has made and sustained the heavens and the earth from the beginning. By a word of your power, you said, let there be light, and there was light. And so it went for all six days of creation until all that we witness in the material cosmos was ordained and set in place, set in motion, set in life cycle, set in sustaining capacity by the power of Almighty God. We thank you, Lord, that though man fell in his sin, nevertheless, Lord Jesus, the one with the creative power to speak worlds into existence, spoke by the word of his power, a redemptive plan, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Christ came in order to recreate the human soul for those who had placed faith and trust in him and his work to satisfy the judgment due their sin have been reborn unto eternal life. And those who count Christ as our Savior join in sweet fellowship this day, having realized the saving work of Christ alone. Father, as we turn to your word, wherein your glories, your power, your works, your marvelous plan is revealed, I pray that you would open the eyes of our spiritual understanding and deepen our heart's capacity to appreciate and expand our intelligence to comprehend the glories therein revealed. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, came, Lord, at the fullness of time. But we find in your scriptures even this day that this event was preceded by glorious explanation, anticipation, prophecy, and word, and type, and symbol, and ceremony. Father, and all of this has such beauty and glory to it that it behooves us to pay close attention. I pray that the Spirit would use this morning's proclamation of your holy word to rise us out of our seat and of lethargy, Lord, to lift us out of our attitude of complacency, to worship you more consistently and fervently, and to walk more fully in the way that you have prepared for us. And I also pray, Lord, that as the proclamation of your gospel goes forth through your eternal word, that you would draw the lost unto salvation, repentance of their sin, and faith in Jesus Christ, who alone can save. It is to you, O Lord Jesus, we lift our hosannas, crying, save us, knowing that this is where our help comes from. And so today, may you be honored and glorified in our midst as we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word. It is in your, your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we have the great honor and privilege of turning to the word of God to gain clarity and perspective, to deepen the roots of our faith understanding of what happened to us when we were saved, and also to encourage and equip the church in times such as we are in right now with appropriate ways to glorify God, to advance His kingdom, and to fortify His church even in times of trial, affliction, pestilence, pandemic, you name it. Today, to do this, we turn to the scriptures again in Nehemiah chapter 9. So turn there with me this morning if you would. In a moment, we'll stand, as is the pattern laid out for us in Nehemiah 9, for the reading of God's holy word. The title of this morning's message is, Mindful of His Wonders. The title comes from Nehemiah 9.17, wherein we read, quote, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Contrasting to that, the second portion of the verse speaks of God's readiness to forgive. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
This morning, it is the aim of our message today to look to the voice or look to the worship of God's people in Nehemiah 9 to give voice to our own repentance, that we might turn from our stiff-necked obstinance as a people and as individuals and remember that our Lord is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love and ready to forgive. Part of our repentance, according to Nehemiah 9, will be returning uh, unto the knowledge the proclamation and appreciation of his wonders, to be mindful of his wonders. Would you stand out of reverence this morning for the word of God as we proclaim, or as we hear proclaimed in our hearing today, the scriptures in Nehemiah 9, 7 through 17. Here is the word of God. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made with him a covenant to give him offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters." By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Turn in your scriptures to a corresponding passage, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy 27. I pray you indulge me for a few moments as we lay some background Some more background in this very covenantally rich, if you will, portion of Scripture, which has precedent throughout all of the record of the law of Moses, and instruction and ceremony therein, and so forth. Israel's repentance, reconstruction, and revival. Three things just by way of reference to describe what we are witnessing in Nehemiah 9. We are witnessing repentance, reconstruction, and revival. This happened in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was marked by memorial convocation. What is a convocation? It's a solemn 
purposeful, intentional assembly or gathering of individuals. Uh, presumably individuals who will be affected by the purpose of that gathering. So, in our passage today, Nehemiah's, uh, under Nehemiah's leadership, repentance, reconstru- reconstruction, and revival commenced by memorial convocation, solemn assembly. These milestone moments of national significance at this time occur in the context of solemn and extensive, and here's a key phrase, covenant renewal ceremony. That's underlined in your notes, or you could write it down, covenant renewal ceremony. We've been studying Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 because there is so much applicable reference to our time today, in fact. And one thing we should note is the context and background of what we're witnessing is exactly this, a covenant renewal ceremony. During this event, the entire nation submits to the rule of their God by humbling themselves with sackcloth and fasting, as we've studied before under a sermon entitled Sackcloth or Slavery. So the entire nation submits to their God, humbling themselves in this posture of humility, earth on their heads, sackcloth and fasting, before the authority of Yahweh, the I Am revealed to Moses, their one true God. And as His word is read, they do so as His word is read, speaking to his authority and the ground and foundation of their society. They do so also confessing their sins. Their history is recounted. A document is signed. Worship commences and vows are solemnized. That's what's going on. All these things. The word of God is read. Sins are confessed. Their history is recounted. A document is signed. Worship commences and vows are solemnized. These inaugural rituals are not without precedent. This has happened before. The people are returning to instructions they received through Moses when they first entered the promised land. And so let's turn to Deuteronomy 27 and see where this kind of thing was first uh, instituted. Nehemiah 27.1. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 27.1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, quote, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. A land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there and shall rejoice before the Lord your God and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. Some of you may be familiar with the remaining context of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which includes confessional statements where the people speak in antiphonal, which means they answer back to what is given. It's a congregation response format. The people speak and they pronounce solemnly that if disobedience is suffered among them, curses will commence. Or if they are obedient, that God will bless them. And so this is, in long form here, as you continue to read through Deuteronomy, an inaugural covenant renewal ceremony that the people are to embark upon when they cross into the promised land. 
In the book of Joshua, we find that they are obedient to these instructions. And as they cross the Jordan and enter into that place that God has provided for them, they obey the word of the Lord through Moses. And we read of this in Joshua 8.30, just a couple verses corresponding to what we just read. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges. You notice the parallels to Nehemiah? This is all Israel. All offices, important from the most important to the lowest of the classes, are gathered underneath the authority of God's law pictured in this ceremony. They stood opposite the sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gezerim and half in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And notice verse 34, and afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. All of Israel, sojourner, native-born, elders, officers, judges, stood opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. The word of God is proclaimed. The people stand in reverence before the word from the most important among them all the way down to the poorest, the littlest, and least among them, recognizing the authority of the Lord. His word is featured prominently in their confession and even in this memorial, a permanent record on stones. These inaugural rituals are not without precedent. The people are returning in Nehemiah 9 to instructions they received through Moses when he first entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 27, a memorial monument was commissioned. A permanent plaster, uh, milestone, altar, stone, or altar, if you will, which continued or which contained the law of God published for all the nation and for future generations to behold. These instructions are followed by extensive blessing and punishment reading detailing the consequences of obedience or lack thereof to the law of God. The ceremony commences and all Israel stands at attention as the word of God is read in their hearing. Nehemiah 9 documents return to these instructions. Remember, all the people stand for a quarter of the day while the word of God is proclaimed in their hearing. They worship the Lord for a quarter of the day as the Levites offer these praises, which is our text this morning, and so forth. Their worship leaders, are, uh, the people are answering back to the Lord, as I mentioned before, in a sort of antiphonal covenant worship. That means a congregation response format. Our text today is a portion uh, of the returning exiles, anti, uh, antiphonal covenant wor covenantal worship, if you will. They have just heard the law of the Lord, and now they are answering back appropriately to the reading of his law. Through their worship leaders, they're responding with, key phrase, a confessional summary of the history of their generations. So they are comparing their history to the demands of the law of God 
confessing where they have fallen short, and remembering, being mindful of his wonders among them. This accounting demonstrates a sober assessment of their own history, their society, their culture up to this point. And they do so according to the standard, the immovable, righteous, holy standard of God's word. There is no vainglory or idolatrous nationalism displayed in this biographical evaluation. This is not idolatry. This is the worship of the one true God. This is laying aside personal ambition. This is laying aside the idol worship of their political or war leaders and so forth, their heroes, and placing only one on a pedestal among them, Yahweh and his revealed scripture. Contrast this, if you would, to an Independence Day, July 4th celebration in our land. Does it carry any of these elements? Does it retain any of this sober sobriety in our day and age? Nothing could be farther from the truth, it would seem. Furthermore, contrast this history record with our own textbooks documenting the course of our nation. Do authors of history textbooks or the record of our own story, do they seek to carefully compare the record of this nation with the standards of God's word, celebrate his glories among us, be mindful of his wonders, document where we've fallen short for the purpose of acknowledging as much and then repenting? We ought to. Contrast this with the uh, collective heart, this collective heart of repentance that we see in Nehemiah 9 with the popular attitudes of our day. We've mentioned before, but it seems like the popular response, the knee-jerk reaction, is to run to our idols for help and hope rather than confessing that they are but foolish, ridiculous constructs of men that fail us in the time we most need them. Repentance is not forthcoming often among people and civil leaders and perhaps chiefly because it requires of them that they forego the credit when penitent prayers are answered. In other words, Deuteronomy 27, 28, Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and 10, they lay out a covenant renewal ceremony where if the Lord answers the prayers based upon their posture and humility before him, the only person who will get the glory for their reconstruction and revival is the Lord. Yahweh's name, if you will, will be the only name that appears on the stimulus checks in ancient Israel to tie it to our day and age. Meanwhile, in America, we have political parties and individuals who are competing, elbowing each other out of the way in a race to the front to be proven the hero when they satisfy for or when they solve this crisis that we're in. Again, we're in April 2020. There's a worldwide pandemic upon us, at least as far as it's been determined by experts and the powers that be, and a highly infectious respiratory disease called COVID-19 is threatening us as a nation. And what do we have? We have all kinds of people who are seeking to be proven the hero, industries, medical leaders, policymakers, experts, politicians, and they want to be seen as the ones who can answer our time in answer with help and salvation from this threat in our time. This is not repentance. Instead, repentance is recognizing that our lungs are a gift from God. And if we continue to breathe for another moment, for another day, it comes at His mercy and by His power. 
Repentance recognizes that a nation stands or falls according to the pleasure of the Almighty. And furthermore, His Scripture needs to be consulted, and and therein we find that righteousness exalts a people, but sin is a reproach to the nation. So this is a background for Nehemiah 9, Deuteronomy 20, or from Deuteronomy 27, which was fulfilled in Joshua chapter 8 and sets forth, may I suggest, a pattern for us even today. We must, if we are going to be repentant, visit the worship of God's people to give voice to a true heart that turns to the Lord, to be mindful of His wonders. So let me give you a heading for our passage today to try to apply this text. Heading, in their repentance, Israel remembered the Lord's five things. Number one, gracious covenant. In their repentance, Israel remembered the Lord's gracious covenant, His relationship with them. Number two, in their repentance, Israel remembered the sovereign glory of God, the Lord's sovereign glory. Number three, they remembered His divine revelation. And number four, they remembered His miraculous provision. Those are our four major points today. I can't remember if I said five, but it's indeed four. Gracious covenant, sovereign glory, divine revelation, miraculous provision. These are the wonders that Israel is mindful of in Nehemiah 9, 7-17. And this is just a snapshot of this portion of this covenant renewal ceremony. But we have plenty to learn here, so let's get to it. Number one, gracious covenant. Notice in verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. Abraham, excuse me. So this is a record of the gracious covenant that God made to his people through their forefather, Abraham, whose name was changed, and it goes way back. You'll notice the subpoints of my message today are all ascribing phrases. So as the people are bringing this portion, they're recounting their history, they're speaking it directly to the Lord. You are the one who chose Abram. You are the one who kept your promises to him. You are the one who made a name for yourself. You led them. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them bread. You are a God ready to forgive. This is the orientation of a covenant renewal ceremony that recognizes the wonders of the Lord. This is the voice of repentance. The voice of prideful vainglory says, vote for me, I will promise you a better tomorrow. Or endorse me or adopt my policies, I will provide for you help in this instance. That's not the voice of repentance. That's the voice of idolatry. The voice of repentance is this. You chose our forefathers. Your plan precedes us by thousands and thousands of years. We are small in the grand scheme of things. You have kept your promises. You have made a great name for yourself. We are nothing in light of your glory, your sovereign glory. You have led us. You have spoken from heaven. You have sustained us, and so on and so forth. This is the attitude of repentance that Israel demonstrates in this portion. And first of all, they recognize in the repentance the Lord's gracious covenant to them. They say, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham. In choosing Abraham, they acknowledge from the start of this section of this covenant renewal ceremony, God's predestination. It is his sovereign will that singled out a significant son. 
A significant son, Abraham, was not chosen because of his own merit or works, far from it. In fact, it was God's plan and decree, and thus his sovereign glory that would be featured in choosing this man. And so it is in our own salvation. Is it not, brothers and sisters, elect of God, predestined before the foundation of the world, that you should be righteous in Christ? His indwelling spirit renders you justified before him through faith in his sovereign work and nothing of your own merit, lest you could boast about it? Yes, God chose you. You have chosen us just as you've chosen Abraham. Abraham was a forefather of the covenant who demonstrated, who typified the salvation, the sovereign work of grace in salvation. God chose him. And the people say that we exist today because you sovereignly chose our forefather centuries ago. You are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. The people are not like Nebuchadnezzar. They don't stand on the precipice of their palace and say, look what we built. Is there anyone greater? We could easily say that, could we not? You know, on the decks of an aircraft carrier, you have thousands of sailors, you know, Navy men lined up, and they all stand at attention. The flag waves above them. The breeze is blowing this ship and this nuclear-powered vessel that doesn't need to be refueled for like 30-something years is charging forward at breakneck speed, relatively speaking, with a floating city to accomplish and secure the safety of America. And it would be easy to assume when we look at examples like that, that we are great. But what would we do? What are we doing when we confess such hope? We are showing that we trust in chariots and horses and not in the name of the Lord our God, who sovereignly chooses nations, lifts them up and casts them down according to his will and word who sovereignly chooses individuals, saving them by his sovereign grace from the hell that they deserve. You chose Abram. This is one of the marvelous wonders the people are mindful of. God's gracious covenant. You brought him out of Ur. Ur, of course, was the place of Abram's roots, his origin. Ur and Haran, two cities that represent pagan, his pagan history. The unbelieving society in which he dwelt and interacted with before he was singled out to be a light to the nations through a new city, a new country, if you will. The Lord in so doing separated Abram from the peoples and the foreigners. And this is significant because the people are now choosing to separate themselves again, 9-2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. So the people looked to the covenant terms of Abraham modeled by God's sovereign grace before him and his subsequent actions, and they walk in that same footsteps. They come out from their ur, their heron, if you will, by separating themselves from foreigners and standing and confessing their dependence on the Lord and their shortcomings in the light of his righteousness. Furthermore, in Nehemiah 9, excuse me, 10, we see this language repeated. It says that the people separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, as we've studied in past messages. They entered into a curse and oath to walk in his law, and they committed, in verse 30, to not give their daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters or their son, uh, for their sons. In so doing, they are walking in the footsteps of their forefather Abraham, who God chose out of Ur to be separated unto him to be a light to the nations to walk in his way. You gave him the name Abraham. Again, recognizing the sovereignty of the Lord and establishing this gracious covenant, you gave him the name Abraham. Now, how often 
Our legacies and ambitions and goals and destinies and dreams in our day and age driven by this idea of making a name for ourselves. As people approach my age and a little bit beyond and so forth, it's tempting to begin to think about legacy. Questions of what I leave behind come up. And on an individual level, people seek to make a name for themselves. Nations, institutions, you know, political leaders and so forth, and all these different, you know, in academia and science and all these uh, pursuits and disciplines across the board. It is a collective effort in most cases to make a name for ourselves. The people recognize that they are nothing without their Lord, that it wasn't a group of experts in the scientific field that purchased for them hope of deliverance from pestilence. It wasn't experts in the State Department that purchased for them safety with regard to foreign policy. It wasn't a group of experts in the medical community that were able to design a vaccine that would insulate them against the threat of pestilence in the future. No. The people recognize that it is the Lord who makes a name for himself and gives uh, the name Abraham to Abraham. Abraham did not make a name for himself. The Lord named him. And the people recognize this. You are the one who gave him the name Abraham, a sign of God's sovereignty, authority, and ability to effectuate his work through his significant son. The reason Abraham was significant is because the Lord chose him and named him, called him, appointed him, and equipped him. Thus, when Abraham's prayers were answered, just like those offered in Nehemiah 9, God alone receives the glory. And then finally it says, You made with him, you found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. A gracious covenant includes the fact that God chose Abraham and also that he keeps his promises. His name I am, his name Yahweh, in fact, insinuates it, it means as much. It implies that God is the ultimate covenant keeper, that he never breaks his vows. He swears by himself because there is no one higher, and he always fulfills that which he intends to accomplish. For you are righteous, the people say. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And notice what this means for them. Have asked, you know, we ask ourselves this question, have they kept their promises? They confess through the course of this, inasmuch as they, they and their forefathers have been stiff-necked that no, they have not. What does that make them? Unrighteous. Those who break their word, break the covenant, do not keep their promises, are unrighteous. They're in need of a sacrifice. They're in need of atonement. They're in need of salvation. They must bear their souls before the mercy of God and plead that he would save them. May the God who keeps his promises in atoning his people save the people who break their own covenant, who do not keep their promises. For you are righteous. Furthermore, you saw the affliction of our fathers, they say in verse 9, in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. How did God keep his promises in the case or in this situation? For example, during the exile when the people were in slavery for so many years in Pharaoh's Egypt. Well, in Exodus 14, we see what God did. He intervened against incredible odds for, the say, or for uh, his name's sake, such that no sea, no natural geographic feature, no pharaoh, no army, boasting more power and technical 
resources than any on the, na- on the world stage thus far. No nation, no empire, no tragedy, no exile, no enslaved status would stand in the way of God and his promise keeping. You saw the affliction of our fathers and in spite of their enslaved uh, exiled status and so forth, you heard their cry. And in spite of them standing at the Red Sea with this great uh, you know, body of water in between them and your promises, you did not let that stand in the way. And despite them being pursued by Pharaoh's armies and their and chariots and horsemen, nevertheless, you prevailed and so on and so forth. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cries at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. And it goes on. Suffice it to say, in their repentance, Israel remembered the Lord's gracious covenant. His covenant to choose Abram and to keep his promises. Secondly, in their repentance, Israel remembers the Lord's sovereign glory. And you performed signs, verse 10, and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the peoples of the land. Remember, we're being mindful or we're learning from the Israelites to be mindful of the Lord's wonders. Wonders are that which display the author's glory. The Lord's works, his worth, his works, his attributes we often associate with his glory. His wonders could be added to that category. Those are the things that only God can do. And when considering them, encourages us, compels us to bring glory to his holy name. If you are a believer and if you are mindful of the wonders of the Lord, consider your own salvation against all odds. The Lord refused to let the judgment your sin deserves stand in between you and heaven by taking that judgment on his own back when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ our Lord, suffered, was beaten, bruised, and slaughtered for your sin. This is the wonder of the Lord that we hold up each day, Lord's Day, that we gather. And as we draw our attention to it, it should move us to ascribe to the Lord the glory he deserves. You made a name for yourself. Verse 10 continues. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. This overlaps, of course, with Abraham's name being chosen by God versus him making a name for himself. You see here, it's emphasized even more uh, directly that the purposes of God's work among his people is not to exalt them, but to exalt him. In naming Abraham and in calling him out from the surrounding nations, Ur and Haran, he is glorifying his name. In answering the cries of his people, performing signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants in the land of Egypt, who acted arrogantly against the Lord and against his people, he is making a name for himself. Yahweh is declaring his glories. And they say, as it is to this day. In other words, your name is proclaimed and declared and manifestly glorious now thousands of years or hundreds of years removed from this event as much as it was then. And it is only our sinful negligence that has forgotten. Is God any less glorious just because 2,000 years have passed since the incarnation? Never. The news and the, uh, the life-changing event, the sovereign hinge of history that is the entrance of Jesus Christ, fully God, into, uh, the, into our state and history, becoming fully man, is an event that deserves glory. 
The Lord has made a name for himself in that act, and it is so even to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went up through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. This is a record of the sovereign glory of our Lord. Let me give you a brief aside. A covenant in, old time, in ancient times such as this and covenant renewal ceremonies often had a certain shape to them, five major points. This is review, but it's been some time since I emphasized this. It is important. So let me just give it to you quickly so you can uh, study and compare these points with the structure of Nehemiah 9 later. A covenant would often have this shape or this structure to it. Number one, transcendence. That is the declaration of the great king. And we have this in our text today. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be His glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. This is an announcement. It's a declaration of the highest authority. That is, the suzerain or the great king is introduced at the beginning of this covenant. And then after that, the next element of covenant is a historical prologue, and it includes within it a hierarchy. In other, word, in other words, it's a history of the relationship between the lesser party and the greater party. God is a great party. He is the one that makes the covenant and establishes heaven and earth. The lesser party are his people. And so most of chapter 9 is a detail of the historical record of this relationship where God has shown his mercy and his wonders and where the people have fallen short. Number three element of covenant is a law. It is a revelation of the demands that the greater king makes upon the lesser. Number four is oaths or sanctions. And, and, and that part is the consequences for keeping by way of blessing or consequences for breaking by way of punishment, the law that he gives. And finally, there's a succession plan, how this will continue. And you'll find all of these points in Nehemiah 9 and 10. The great king, a history of Israel's relationship to their Lord and sovereign. His law and its importance and how they've fallen short of it. A recognition of the same, an oath and a promise to return in repentance to his word. And finally, a monument, just like the stones were carved upon entrance to the promised land of old, they sign and seal a covenant document so that further generations can be taught the commitment to the Lord that this moment represents. Being mindful of his wonders, giving voice to repentance, that people remember the Lord's gracious covenant and his sovereign glory. He made a name for himself, furthermore, by signs and wonders announced in the court of Pharaoh. Here we have a fugitive shepherd versus an empirical world power. Who's the fugitive shepherd? That would, of course, be Moses. And there he is. We have Moses versus Pharaoh, this world power. And Moses is nothing, but God is deemed to show his glory and authority through this unlikely servant. Will this happen again? It will happen all through history. God will use unlikely voices, men like John the Baptist with unassuming clothing and camel's hair eating locusts and honey coming out of the wilderness, crying, make straight the way of the Lord. And suddenly one day he points to the Lamb of God who was born of a virgin to take away the sins of the world. 
Elijah is nothing compared to Jezebel and Ahab by human accounting terms is concerned, but he declares to the prophets of Baal a little contest. Let's see who will answer by fire. And in the end, all 450 prophets of Baal are slaughtered, and the Lord, Yahweh, answers in fire, consumes the water, the sacrifices, and is proclaimed once again as Israel's sovereign. And so it happens here. Moses, he is the shepherd that ran away, right? He was the fugitive from the law, having killed a man, entering the wilderness for 40 years and then returns and declares to Pharaoh, let my people go. There was no authority in Moses' voice. He couldn't even talk. He had to have his brother speak for him. The real authority came from the Lord, his sovereign glory, which commanded to the Pharaoh, release your hold on my people, unchain them or else. Of course, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? To show his wonders. And though this great world power refused to comply, he was destroyed. His nation was racked with plague upon pestilence, upon, upon wonder, rivers turning to blood, insects wiping out crops, hailstorms destroying livestock. And finally, the Red Sea parted and collapsing upon the pursuing armies, all to show that the Lord was making a name for himself, dividing the sea and crashing it upon his enemies and casting the pursuers of his people into the depths. There's a great irony here. The very path that the Lord had made for his people to escape was the very path that the rebels, uh, the armies of Pharaoh, sought to destroy the Lord's efforts. And that principle is alive and well in the rebellious heart of every individual. We use the lungs that God gave us to deny his existence. We use the body that he fearfully and wonderfully designed to rebel against his statutes and his rule. We use the day that he has made This is the day that the Lord has made to declare that we are our own captains of our destiny. We use the reasoning faculties that he gave us being made in his image to justify by convoluted, foolish reasoning that God does not exist and therefore I must be him, and so on and so forth. This is like traveling uh, ironically and rebelliously upon the path that God has forged through the sea in a vain attempt to destroy him. And if we continue on that path, The powers of God's earth will collapse upon us one day and our life will be required. And the next moment we will consciously observe as ourselves standing before the true suzerain, the true covenant head and answering for our rebellion without excuse because all of nature screamed around us to his existence and his authority. Where will we be in that day? Well, let us assume the heart and attitude of repentance where Israel remembers and is mindful of the wonders, the works of our God. So we repent and remember his gracious covenant and his sovereign glory. And number three, his divine revelation, 12 through 14. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. The Lord is leading them, guiding them, directing them. Again, this uh, ascribing language. You led them. Not we journeyed or we traveled or we explored or we discovered. No, you led them. You spoke with them from heaven, he goes further to say. By a pillar, you led them. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You led them. You came down. You spoke with them. And gave them right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. Four references to the word of God. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. 
In the repentance, Israel remembers the wonders of the Lord. Specifically, they remember not only His gracious covenant, not only His sovereign glory, but His divine revelation. His law, His word revealed on those tablets of stone, granting by His very finger the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, all of the written law in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and these presumably were read nonstop, cover to cover, in their hearing in these types of covenant renewal ceremonies. Would we ever do such a thing today? I pray that we would. I think it would be a great idea, a great gesture of repentance to stand for a quarter of the day after all God has done for us. Is that too much to ask of us? We, a stiff-necked people, have fallen so far short of honoring Him and acknowledging these great wonders, not only that He has done in our day, in our experience, and in the history of our land in His providence, but to and, th- and for His people throughout all of recorded history, you led them. God's divine revelation revealed, showed the way that they were to go. He did so by powerful presence, a personal presence, a cloud and fire. I don't have time to research these, but note Exodus 14, 19, Exodus 32, 34. It wasn't just this cloud by day and fire by night, but also the very angel of the Lord that went before them. It wasn't just a manifestation of an interesting, you know, extraordinary event like a cloud, but it was the personal presence of God embodied in these theophonic, which means a revelation of God in some kind of tangible form, which indicates his very presence was among them. The angel of the Lord is another term that refers to a person, God incarnate in some way or God revealed in some way, actually leading his people. Like a shepherd leading a train of a million sheep. Uh, as far as we can tell, our rough estimates through the wilderness for 40 years unto the promised land. You led them. You came down on Mount Sinai, speaking of condescension. What is condescension? It's the stooping low, the greater to the lesser. The great suzerain came down on Mount Sinai. It's this purposeful language that illustrates in this analogy how God takes on humbly the form of a servant in the future, in, in the incarnation, and sets and veils for a time his pre incarnate glory in Christ and becomes a man to take upon the burden of our own sin. In a similar way, the Lord came down to Moses on Sinai to reveal his law. And at that very moment, he revealed that he was a God who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, yet a righteous, holy, and wrath-filled God who demands perfection in his presence. And so the people needed atonement. You led them. You spoke with them from heaven. You gave them rules, laws, statutes, commandments, five words, four words in the Hebrew, all referred to commonly in the Psalms. They referenced the Holy Sabbath, commandment four, as one example. Now, how do we appreciate and consider the law of God today? You know, there are 600 and some, maybe 613 as I recall, case law commandments in addition to the Ten Commandments, and a lot of them are obscure and uh, strange sounding to us. I have a personal goal, a pastoral goal, and it is this, and I don't know if I'll ever reach it, but it is something that I'm working on. My goal through my ministry over the course of time is to so equip myself, my children, and those who listen in this flock that any time an unbeliever would want to object to the glorious law of God, by bringing up to our ears an obscure commandment, you would be excited to hear that objection because you would be able to take that commandment and use it 
as a segue to the gospel, to the glory of God, to the genius of his, of his law. Let me give you one example. In the Old Testament, no doubt today they would call it discriminating, unfair, and hateful. But if you had a disease like leprosy, that which could contaminate others, you were exiled and banished from the fellowship of God's people. Symbolically, you were rendered unclean and you must live apart and separate. And this seems like such an unfair practice, does it not? How could you be so cruel and unjust? Well, the law also had laws of separation uh, or statutes of separation. And it indicated that in the symbolic a way that the law pictured righteousness and wickedness, if anything evil would touch the vessels, if anything corrupt, any dead thing or so forth, it would contaminate the user or the vessel or the population. So that which represented uncleanness had to be kept at a distance. Now this is an analogy and an object lesson that the Lord used to reveal aspects of his character and redemptive purposes. And these people, yes, I say, had the privilege of participating in that analogy, though you would be suffering for sure as a leper. But this would change. One day, there was the Son of Man who was born, the Son of David, the one prophesied and fulfilled, who came in the fullness of time. And now a leper approaches Jesus, and what happens? Does he recoil and say, do not touch me? I cannot be corrupted by the unclean? No. Our Lord and Savior touches the leper, and they are instantly healed. You see, under the old covenant, and by our own means, it is our sin that is radioactive and condemns and corrupts everything. But in the new covenant, through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, it is the touch of our Messiah that is radioactive, if you will, and renders us holy. I'm telling you, someone could give you an objection from the law they do not understand, and you could use it as a segue for a mini-sermon to explain to them how God has revealed His power to redeem and to sanctify through the touch of His Son. And thank God we weren't born back then waiting in faith for the touch of his son and dying as a physical leper, ostracized from the people under those conditions. But we suffer in some ways right now. We are ordained to endure some affliction. Paul counted it a privilege to join in the sufferings of Christ. Is it for a purpose? Yes. Jesus Christ has touched us. We have become holy and sanctified. And that work is a process. And it will find its fulfillment in glory one day. And we will be perfectly whole. And we will wear His robes of righteousness. You see, this is the purpose of the law in part, especially now in our day, to use it to show the glories of our God. It is divine revelation. It is a wonder what He's revealed. And there is no aspect of Scripture that we should be nervous or ashamed of. If we don't understand it, that's okay. Just study a little more. And you can always say, I don't know. And you can always search deeper. But do not be ashamed and do not deny that this is the singular, eternal, glorious, valuable, precise, ingenious, holy word of God. The flesh will wither and fade and fail, but it will stand forever. The Ruach breath of God will blow and it will cause the flesh to wither, but his word will remain. Do not be stiff-necked. Finally, miraculous provision. In their repentance, Israel remembered gracious covenant, sovereign glory, divine revelation, and miraculous provision. God has provided for us miraculously, saints, in our salvation and in our day-to-day provisions. Verse 15, they recognize as much at this time. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is miraculous provision. Kids, what was it called? The food that God gave from heaven for the people to eat when they were in the... That's right, Theo, thank you. Manna. Manna is called the bread from heaven. 
It was the miraculous provision of the Lord. We have manna, so to speak, at the Lord's table when we celebrate it here. There is a connection that we can learn from a physical provision to spiritual provision. In other words, there is a relationship between God supplying our needs, even with our day-to-day meals, and God supplying our needs as to our spiritual nutrition. A pattern of provision in the wilderness wanderings models for us, this models a spiritual uh, a connection, or models for the spiritual heirs of, the, of Israel, that would be us, a connection between physical and spiritual provision. Each meal, how many of you, I wonder, pray before your meals? I suspect most all of us do. We, we pray and we thank the Lord for the meal. And this is biblical, may I suggest, and it can be an application of this very concept. Each meal we're blessed to receive is intended to signify his sustenance in our salvation unto glory. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am living water. Jesus says, partake of my flesh and blood symbolically at my table and live. The miraculous provision even of our own meal by God's providence, sending the rain upon the crops that allows food to be delivered to our door, to grow in our own gardens. This is bread from heaven, so to speak, to satisfy our hunger. This is water we pump up from the ground of God's glorious green earth that still yields so much of what he intended to originally for us. This is water for us to be mindful that Jesus Christ is our bread unto eternal life. He is our manna from heaven. He is the water and that well from which we drink unto living eternally, eternal life. And moreover, he has gone to prepare a place for us. Water, bread, and place are all referenced by as miraculous provision in this section. You gave them bread from heaven, brought water out of the rock, and you gave them a land to go in and possess. Now, in verse 16, as we bring this message to a close, we recognize God's miraculous provision. He gave them bread, but thankfully, He is also a God ready to forgive. You gave them bread, you are a God ready to forgive. The people needed not only manna from heaven, not only water from a rock, lest they die of thirst and starve, but they needed a covering for their souls because they had fallen out of covenant. They had disobeyed their Lord and Savior and Maker and Creator and Ordainer and Predestinator, and they had grown stiff-necked, which means obstinate, rebellious. It means that they refused to be corrected, and they grew hard in their heart. But now they are turning from their stiff-neckedness. Is that a word? From their stiff-neckedness. They're turning to Him. They're mindful of His wonders. They're giving voice to their repentance and confessing their sins. Verse 16 But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiff-necked and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. Again, the title of our message, the main theme, be mindful of his wonders. That's part and parcel of repentance. Recognize what Christ has done. Recognize what God has done, even in our own experience, even in our land, collectively as a people, certainly in our hearts, individually as the saved ones. Recognize the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. They were not mindful of these. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You remember, the ground opens, and the followers of Korah, for instance, are swallowed in God's judgments. Why? Because of their rebellion against the Lord's will for them, and their breaking of His covenant. Nevertheless, it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. We have refused to obey. We have not been mindful of its wonders in this nation. Yes, indeed, circumstances of late have revealed we deserve every bit of this pandemic in as far as we are a stiff-necked people. There's so many examples, and I don't have time, but I'm sure you can draw the connections as you read of responses, the news, and so forth, and you see the, all the crying out for salvation, all the hosannas lifted to all the foolish gods, even in our day today. However, saints, and even people of this nation, it is clear God has not utterly forsaken us just yet. If we are alive today, we have opportunity in our hearts to repent in the case of the individual. If our nation has not been utterly destroyed, overrun, if sulfur fire from heaven has not rained destruction upon us like Sodom and Gomorrah that we so greatly deserve, we have another day to repent. We have national opportunity to embrace this crisis for what God intends in part for it to be a wake-up call to turn from our stiff-necked sin, to be mindful of His wonders, and to turn to His Word to give voice for our repentance, to recognize we are nothing without His gracious covenant, nothing apart from His sovereign glory, nothing without His divine revelation, nothing without His miraculous provision, chiefly featured in our own salvation. This crisis has descended upon us, and we ask the question we asked before, how will we respond Will we be stiff-necked like Pharaoh, or will we respond the way the instructions are given in 2 Chronicles 7? And I want to thank Danny for pointing this out to me of late. We've had a lot of discussions on this. You're familiar with this verse, I'm sure. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. There's land healing spoken of an individual heart healing spoken of. So we're familiar with this verse. It's often quoted in times like these. It's often quoted in context of national repentance. But notice the verse before. 2 Chronicles 7.13 When I shut up the heavens so that there is no grain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. When I command the locusts, when I send the pestilence. COVID-19, this threat of this disease, the coronavirus, is a pestilence that God in His sovereign glory has sent for a purpose. And among these purposes, may I suggest that it is a reminder of our frailty, our weakness, our vulnerability, and the fact that we are not promised tomorrow, and no man knows the day or the hour when he, not only when Christ comes back, but when he will have to depart from this earth. But it behooves us to number our days, which means behooves us to realize how frail we truly are and to place our hope in one who can outlast the grave. So when he sends a pestilence, and when we go through affliction and trial and hardship, and all the suffering that attends a fallen world, may we turn to the Lord, and may we find healing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will we stiffen our necks like Pharaoh, or will we humble ourselves the way we are commanded, 
and light of God's sovereign, corrective, chastising afflictions. As for us, in this room, in the hearing of this message, let us answer this call and close in prayer of repentance and pray that others would hear the voice of the Lord calling them to turn from their sins as well. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to set our minds aright through the perspective that your holy word supplies. We pray that you would forgive us for our stiff-neckedness. We confess that we have been obstinate, that we have broken your rules. We have not been mindful of your wonders. We have taken lightly your gracious covenant. We have spurned your sovereign glory. We have minimized and ignored, and sometimes we have mocked your divine revelation. Lord, as a people, certainly we have not recognized your miraculous provision, but have pretended that we are the source of our future and everything from our next meal to hope for a better tomorrow. And for this, we are sorry. We have broken covenant with you. Lord, I pray that you would renew our relationship with you as individuals and as a people. And perhaps, Lord, you would even cause us to reenact in some way, at least on the heart level, a covenant renewal ceremony where we take seriously the message and the model that is laid out for us today to join our voice with those of old who turn from their sin unto you, confessing their sins and the cultural sins, their generational failings of their fathers and determining to live in light of your holy scriptures once again. Father, I thank you that you indeed are faithful to your covenant. The cost of, or you swear by your own hurt and satisfied to the nth degree, absolutely perfect, everything that is necessary for us to be in right relationship with you Lord, help us to realize that and to appreciate it such that we begin to walk in a manner worthy of the call. Thank you that you are so ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We ask that you do not forsake us, but we do not ask this at the expense of your glory. We ask that we would turn to you. And so you would see fit to have mercy upon us and be glorified all the while as we turn to you in our affliction and you deliver us from our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Well, I'm thankful to the Lord and His Word for providing perspective for us today. I pray that He would anoint and bless the proclamation of His Scripture, that anything that is not of Him would be forgotten, that which underscores and properly understands his scripture would be sealed and written upon the table of our hearts and would equip his church to boldly proclaim his lordship and would draw the lost unto repentance and faith in Christ alone. As you go, I encourage you, as we've been saying in recent weeks, to take extra effort to connect with one another. Those that can't fellowship here because of providential hardship, reach out to them. Give an extra phone call. Make sure that people are doing well. Make sure and extend that love of the brethren uh, via technology as we're graciously provided that means, you know, phone, email, text message, so forth. So please do that. Also be praying for us as a church and uh, in our uh, ministry network, Common Slaves, who are working on some documents and so forth to try to proclaim a biblical stance in light of the very fluid and changing and trying situation that our nation is enduring right now. Pray for that. I also have a project that's pretty daunting I don't know if I'm really the person to do it. I don't really think I am, but I'm working on drafting a document of national repentance as an example application of Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. My prayer is that that would be picked up by people who are much more qualified than myself and much more prominently 
whatever, influential. So that might be something that people could actually, an open source document, put their signature on in this nation to communicate a movement toward repentance, to be mindful of his wonders. I also would love it if at some point churches would gather in the wake of this for something like a covenant renewal ceremony. These are just sort of dreams and vision casting I'm doing in my own brain. But stuff to think about and pray about. I encourage you to do that. 